welcome to our Kingdom Culture Podcast. For today's message, we are thankful for what God is doing through this podcast to encourage and transform lives around the world. If you have a story to share about how God has encouraged or transformed your life through this podcast, we would love to hear about it by emailing us at mystory@kingdomculture.ca. If you would like to support this ministry financially to help us bring messages like this to you every week, you can do so online at kingdomculture.ca at the Give option. We also would love to connect with you on our social media, on Instagram and Twitter at KC Ottawa, and Facebook at Facebook slash Kingdom Culture Ottawa. We pray that you would experience God today and be encouraged through today's message. Enjoy! You know, because this message that I'm going to share is, I'm just going to break down one specific verse. And I know principally his word is enough, but I just, I love the reminders that his word truly is enough. His word truly is enough all the time. We are in a series called Heart Work. Everyone says heart work. Everyone say heart work with me. Heart work. Heart work is hard work. You guys are going to have to be loud today. We're a small little bunch. I don't want to talk to a muted person on the other side of the telephone today. Can you give me a, can you give me a promise? Let's engage. Yeah, oos. Yeah, yeah. Now we're a dojo officially. Heart work is hard work. I'm going to read five verses, then we're going to dive into this. I, I could have read six, but I'm going to read five. And there's a reason why I say I could have read six. But I'm going to read five in Psalms 23, chapter, chapter 23. Some of you know, some of you have a tattooed on your arm, Psalms 23. Matt has a tattooed on his arm. Well, you're going to learn something today about the, the very verse that you have tattooed on your arm. Psalms 23, verse 1. Let's go there. Let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. And in the Amplified, it says this. The Lord is my shepherd to feed, guide, and shield me. And in these five, well, actually in the six verses, but I'm going to read the five. In the five verses are hidden within different aspects of the nature of God reflected in the different names of God. So there are many different names of God. I don't know if you know this. Many different names of God. Names that people all throughout Scripture would call God that represented a certain aspect and attribute of his nature. And in each one of these verses is hidden different names of God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break that down briefly. This is not what it's about, but I am going to break it down briefly. Where did Harley go? I have this whole word about the table she had the dream. Where'd she go? Okay. Psalms 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd to feed, guide, and shield me. That, that, that shepherd, the idea of the shepherd is this Jehovah. Everyone say Jehovah. Rapha. Sorry, Jehovah Rohi. Sorry, wrong. <laughs> Rohi. Jehovah Rohi, meaning the Lord is my shepherd. So David writes this statement, the Lord is my shepherd. He's Jehovah Rohi. It means to feed, to guide, to shield me. He says, I shall not lack. One of the names for God is Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. Do you see where I'm going with this? In the verses are hidden the different names of God that reflect different attributes and different parts of his nature. So we have Jehovah Rohi and Jehovah Jireh, my provider. The Lord is my provision. The Lord is my shepherd to feed God and shield me. I shall not lack. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in fresh, tender, green pastures. He leads me beside the still and restful waters. It speaks of trust, peace, and rest. He's Jehovah Shalom is the word. He is the God of my peace. Peaceful God, the God of peace. Jehovah Shalom. Verse 3, he refreshes and restores my life, myself. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, uprightness and right standing with him, not for my earning, but for his name's sake. We see here, he's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals, the Lord that restores. Talking about restoration this morning. The Lord that restores. He is Jehovah. Should I say it again? Rapha. The Lord that heals. The one who restores. He's also Jehovah Sikanu, The Lord of our righteousness. You see this here. David is acknowledging different attributes of the nature of God. By not, not even really naming them. But by including the elements of that nature in each one of these verses. Powerful. Verse 4. 
Yes, though I walk through, many of you know this verse, yes, though I walk through the deep, sunless valley of the shadow of death, I will fear or dread no evil. So even though it's rough, it's rugged, it's hard, I'm in a challenge right now, it feels like darkness all around me, it feels like isolation all around me, I'm the only one, you are with me. I will fear and dread no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, listen to this, your rod to protect and your staff to guide, they comfort me. Two different uh, words used to describe two different elements of a shepherd. He has the rod to basically correct, to fight opposition, and then he has the staff, the hook, to pull, guide, pastor, and compassion. And he is the Jehovah Shama, which means the Lord is present. We see that here. He's present in our valleys. He's present in our dark times. He is the Lord who is present, Jehovah Shama. okay? Then we have Psalms 5. We're going to stop there. Psalms chapter 5. There are six verses, by the way, in Psalms 23. But we're going to stop at Psalms chapter 23, verse 5. You, everyone say you, God, he prepares a table, a table, a table, a blue, shiny table. Blue represents revelation, by the way. It's only at the table where you see the shining of his revelation. It's only in the house of God. I'm not talking about just a gathering on a Sunday. It's within the context of community that we have the revelation of how good God really is. That's why God even said about his own creation when it was just man, it's not good enough for man to be alone because in companionship is the fullness of my liking. In, the, in, in companionship, in community, you're going to see a fullness of who I am. Are you here this morning? Okay. You prepare a table before me, listen to this, in the presence of my enemies. Interesting concept. You think, God would prepare a table without any enemies. God would prepare a table isolated from any attack, right? From any enemy, from any threat, from any potential opposition, from any darkness. But God says, no, no, I prepare a table. I prepare whatever you need to be restored to life in the presence of the things that are coming against you. Interesting, isn't it? We all think it's, it's God's will that we are detached from any challenges sometimes, don't we? We forget what James says about counting it all joy, pure joy. Consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds. We forget, James, we forget these promises of testing trials and, and challenges in our life. And God's like, I prepared everything you need at the table, but guess what? There's a whole bunch of stuff at that table. It's going to try to take you out. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint, listen to this, my head with oil. My brimming cup runs over. This we see the nature of God as depicted as Jehovah Nisi, which means the Lord, our banner. The one who has promised me victory. The Lord, our banner. His banner over me is a promise of victory. It's the victory banner that says I've won the war. I've won the battle. His banner over me, it's a promise, it's a statement that I'm a winner. I'm, a, I'm more, what does the Bible say? I'm more than a conqueror. Why? Because of Jehovah Nisi. Because he's the banner over my life. He's the banner over me. Are you following me this morning? So I want to talk today about treasures, trials, and tables. Treasures, trials, and tables. Because here's the thing. There are tables in every area of life. You know that? There are tables in every area of life, table of family, table of business and career, table of relationships and marriage, and of course, as we see and know in Scripture, the table of the Lord. It's the gathering together, being refreshed by God, restored by God in the context of community. We gather to the table of the Lord. It speaks of intimacy with God, relationship with God. There are many different tables. At every table, though, it's not sunshine and rainbows. How many have Thanksgiving dinners? How many have Christmas dinners? How many have Easter dinners? Have you ever had an argument? Have you ever realized that there was maybe some no-go zones? Did the political conversation come up and then you guys left the table? Maybe there's people that don't believe in God like you do. and the, 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 the spiritual conversation come up and people left the table. Is every table full of sunshine and rainbows? No. 
There is discord. There is division. There is challenging conversations. There's a whole bunch of, if you have history with anybody, a whole bunch of no-go zones. If you just say it like this or say it like that or say this or say that or ask the wrong question, a whole bunch of fire can get set off. You know what I'm talking about? So these tables, although they are meant for good, are always in the presence of some potential bad. Every table in life, your career, your family, every table in life that you sit at, because you're all sitting at tables in every sphere and every place of life. There's potential conflict, disagreements, criticism, pain, hurt, betrayal, fighting, division. But the question God's always asking us is, what do we see at our tables? Do we see God's plan, God's promises, God's purposes for our life? Do we see God's restoration, God's healing, or do we only see the conflict? Do we only see the metaphorical enemy at bay at the other side of the table? What do we see? Because what we see will determine what we experience. What we see is a reflection of a healthy heart or an unhealthy one. And so God wants to continually change our perspective and alter our perception of reality to not just see what everyone else sees, but to see what he sees. At the table of the Lord, there is everything we need to live the life we've called to live, even in the presence of darkness, even in the presence of enemies, even in the presence of opposition and oppression, in the presence of struggle and trial and and, and testing all around us, in the presence of all that, if we can see what God sees, we will always be assured that we have more than enough. That he truly is the banner over our lives. Remember what I, I shared several weeks ago, Romans 8, verse 28. It says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I mean, do we really believe that? God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Isaiah 45 verse 3 gives us a promise, and I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. Like, the greatest treasures are found in the darkest places. If they were found in the lightest places, they wouldn't really be considered treasure. They're treasure because they're lost often. They're treasure because they're undiscovered. They're treasure because you know there's something good, but you got to search for it really hard. It's like, where is the pirate's treasure? Usually in the bottom of the ocean. It's in the darkest of places where nobody wants to go. And that's why I'm talking about today the reality of treasures, trials, and tables, and how they're all, they all intersect together. But in the end, at every table of life, even when you see trial, if you only see trial, you'll never unlock the treasure. But if you can see treasure in the trial, you will unlock the treasure every day of the week. It's like seeing pain in your purpose. If you can't see pain or purpose in your pain, you will never get the purpose out of your pain. God, help us today. I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd speak loud to us, and that we, we truly would have a revelation today that your word is enough. Your word is enough. I don't, God, I don't have any, any extravagant stories today. I don't have any necessarily testimonies today. I just have your word and I pray that today we would get a hold of that your word is enough. And my prayer that is everybody in this room would lean in today. To lean into this truth, this message, that you want to speak to us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God has prepared a feast for us in the presence of opposition. I just, I, I want us to meditate. I was talking to somebody this week about um, what it looks like to meditate on Scripture. And I've shared this with you, what I do. I don't read the Bible. I study it and I meditate on it. It's two different things. You can read your Bible, you can do your devotion and be void and still be Bible illiterate. And what I mean by Bible illiterate is that the way that God looks at literacy in Scripture is that it's transforming your life. He does not honor head knowledge. Paul even rebukes, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that knowledge puffs up. The word means make, makes arrogant. And this was what Paul was when he was Saul. He was an arrogant you-know-what that knew all about God but was persecuting, literally persecuting God. 
in a sense, by killing Christians. But he had all the knowledge. He trained under like the highest level guy, Sadducee, Pharisee, he, 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 uh, Gamaliel. He was like the, the, the most studious guy. Like he, he knew it all. He was like the Pharisee of all the Pharisees. And yet, he was void of experience. He was void of revelation. He was void of who Jesus really was. And that's why I say, I don't read the Bible. I meditate and study the Bible. It's two very different things. I want the Bible to read my life. I don't want it just to read it. I want it to bring me into an experience with God. The Bible is like a gateway to experiencing God. It really is. It's a gateway. It's a doorway. It's an invitation. It's not just a history book full of things that happened. And then maybe you think, well, maybe some of them didn't happen. And some of it's metaphorical. And some of it's symbolic. And some of it's allegorical. Here's the thing. If you don't take all of it at face value, who are you to pick and choose what actually happened and what didn't? It's a very hard job to have. And if you think that some things are metaphorical and allegorical, I would challenge your view of God. You think he's too small, that he couldn't do those actual things. The same God is the same God that I serve. He was the same God yesterday, he's the same God today, and he's the same God forever. If he did it then and he's the creator of all things. You are a walking miracle, by the way. If he can create you and make you you, he could part the Red Sea. He can heal someone's cancer. He can heal someone's brain tumor. He can heal and take out depression. He can remove anxiety. He, he could do all these things. The question is, do you believe he's big enough to do them in your life? Or do you just believe that your faith is sort of revolving around this allegorical belief system that God, he could and he may be, but, you know, to me, he's just this, like, historical figure that we read about and I don't get to actually know in real relationship. He's just this religious figure. No, he's more than that. He's a, the God of relationship. And he wants to reveal all these things to you. And so... I want to dive into, I'm going to break down in verse 5 several elements of this verse. I'm just going to go play by play. Can we do that? So I'm going to teach. So I would encourage you to take notes. In fact, if you're not taking notes, I promise you this, you will not absorb half of what I'm about to sh share. And you will miss what God wants to say to you. I'm that confident if you do not take notes. Because taking notes, what it does is it, is it gets it through here, into here, out of you, it cycles through you. Some, a lot more will stick to you when it cycles through you. Should I say that again? A lot more will stick to you when it cycles through you. And I used to do this. When I first gave my life to Jesus, as, and I was like 19 years old, I would, I would literally open the Bible and I would just write out Scripture on my laptop for hours. I'd just write it out. Write it out. Or on by hand. I would like literally I just I would literally copy the Bible and write it out. And when I would do that, it would like it would get into me differently. It was a form of meditation for me. I'd be thinking about it, I'd be seeing it, I'd be writing it out, and then I'd be rereading it. And it would stick to me. It would stick to me and it would transform. It would do something for me. And so, number one, I want to write, I want to start off with this first part of this verse. We're gonna break this verse down. Number one, Psalms 23, verse 5. You prepare a table. Everyone say you prepare a table. So I want to share six things that God wants us to understand as we talk about treasures, trials, and tables. So number one is you prepare a table. You prepare a table. God puts thought, let me say it like this, into who and what is at your table. So your career, your family, let's just talk about your career. Let's talk about your current life status. God's put very, very, very intentional thought into who's at your workplace. God's put very, very intentional thought into what you are being asked to do and how the what connects to the who. Just like he prepares a feast, the, 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 the idea is he prepares food, okay, at the table. The table of the Lord is not void of food or void of feasting. He prepares food at our table, our sustenance, our substance for living, what we need, our nutrients. He, he, he lays out this buffet spread, and let me tell you, it is not... Um, What's that place called? Um, Mandarin. Someone said it, I think. Someone said it? Someone just say Mandarin? Wow, man, you read my mind. It's not the Mandarin. It's like pure Wagyu beef. That's all it is. I'm just joking. No, carnivore diet. No, he prepares a table 
of, of, of supernatural provision for you, everything you need to live the life you're called to live. He's put thought into the what? He's put thought. But then he's also put thought into who's sitting around your table. Because you're going to have some enemies. You're going to have some people that love you, some loyal people that love you, people that want the worst for you. And all of that is part of the plan. To make you the person that you are called to be. Without your betrayers, without your enemies, without the people that are called the grace growers in your life, you will not become the person you're called to be. You cannot become the person you're called to be and live an isolated leadership life. It doesn't work. God is going to put you in situations where there's going to be opposing circumstances. So think about your job right now, your government position, your legal position, whatever, th- whatever you do right now, your family. God has put great thought into every detail. He's prepared a table. This word for prepare literally means and it describes an arranging, an ordering, uh, an intense preparing because of value. It implies taking my time. David used the word in the, in the Greek that implies taking my time. God is ta- and and the, the, the idea to frame our thinking, because God's, God's out of time. Like, his time isn't our time. But in the, 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 the way that David's painting this picture is that God has intentionally taken time to prepare the perfect scenario for you that would draw out the best in you. So think about when you host a guest at your house. What do you, what do, you do? Hopefully you prepare. The greatest hosts usually are the ones who are often the highest stress. And I'm just saying that usually because they are paying attention to every single detail. And they want to create the most amazing environment where you are going to leave having memorable moment, right? That's what the greatest hosts do. They want to create the most amazing environment for you to come into that when you leave their presence, you remember. That's the goal of God. Every time you come here and you gather as a community, God's goal is that he would encounter you and you would encounter him in such a way that you would be, it would be memorable. It would be a milestone moment. So the idea is David's like, man, he's taking time. He's preparing, he's arranging, he's ordering and this word is found over and over again in the careful arrangement of all the sacrifices on the altar. We see this deliberative or this deliberate, attentive organization to all details. That's the God we serve. That's the God you are called to emulate, an attention to detail. And there's a fine, a fine line between perfectionism, perfectionism and excellence. Like, God's goal, God's, I'm not trying to say that, like, you're not a good host if you don't, like, get stressed out and hate your life at the end of your hosting experience. I'm just saying that the nature of who God is, is he's so thought out everything that he knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly what you need. Preparing a table has special meaning because in the ancient culture of Israel, it was a sign of hospitality and a precursor to relational commitments. Often political alignments would be made in the form of a meal at the table. There was an exchange that happened. Remember the story of Moses, Mount Sinai, has this spiritual exchange with the commandments, has lunch on a bunch of gemstones, basically. God prepares a table. God wants us to feast. God wants us to have relational connection and covenant. And so when God speaks about the table of the Lord, every time you come and you gather at this metaphorical table each week, you are establishing greater, stronger agreements with your God that he is going to do what he said he's going to do in your life. Are you really hearing this this morning? The, t- the table, the, like, if you think about the kind of table that God prepares for us, the word Dave, David chooses actually could be likened to when you're on a cruise. I've never, I've only been on one cruise, so it's never happened to me. But on some cruises, the captain will invite you to his table. It's a special invitation. It's a special invitation. It's a high-ranking table. The captain of the whole cruise ship will be like, I want to choose you. I'm going to invite you to my high table. Because the word that David uses speaks of a high-ranking table. Like the captain of a cruise ship inviting you, you know, this mere little peasant, 
you know, in a small little room on the cruise ship, I'm inviting you to my big, long, high-ranking table. This is the picture that David is drawing. And it's an even higher-ranking table than the captain's table of a cruise ship. It's the Lord's table, literally. It's the Lord's, no ordinary table. We see this table mapped out in Exodus chapter 25. I'm not going to read it. There's also an element of this picture, and probably most of you have not heard this before. When David was, was sharing this, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving you layers of truth here, okay? So part of the way that Scripture works and part of the way when you're teaching and you're studying the Word is that realize that when you peel back one layer of the onion, there's still more layers to go. Like you never really get to the core of the onion, like, you're always cutting up onions in the kingdom. Like, you're always peeling back another layer of Scripture. It, ne- it never gets old. You can read the same verse a million times and get a million different things from it for a million different seasons of your life. And that's what makes the Word so good. Makes the Word so incredible. But there's also this element of where the table doesn't necessarily refer to a piece of furniture because that's, once again, it's a spiritual table. It's a blue, shiny table of revelation like Harley's dream, okay? It's a spiritual table. When at the table, that's where restoration happens, which is why your dream is so powerfully incredible. I mean, I was just blown away. I was like, like, oh, uh uh-oh, I might be a wreck on stage because it was, like like, God wants to get this into us clearly, When a word like this is confirmed like that, this is an important word for us. But the table doesn't necessarily refer to a piece of furniture used by humans. The word simply implies something spread out. And so they used to actually call, shepherds would call the flat places, listen listen to this, shepherds would call the flat places in between the hills, the flat places, the tables, And in the flat places of life is where the sheep would have a break to rest, eat, and be refreshed. In between the hills, in between the hard things of life, the shepherd stops and says, here's a flat place. Here's a table. You're going to get refreshed. You're going to restore your soul. You're going to get rest because we have another hill coming along. Just in a few little days, another hill. You can see it over there. But I need you to sit at the table first. This is the illustration that David's drawing. It's not just a literal furniture table, like this spiritual table that we're not, you don't see a table here, but we are at the table of the Lord. We are sharing in the bread of his presence that Exodus 25 speaks of. That was on the literal table of acacia wood in the old covenant, in the tent of meeting. You talking with me here? So the in-between places, it's not the valley, it's the table, it's the flat places, the place of rest. This is the picture that David is drawing. He allows allows them to to eat, or to rest and feast. And because God, this is the thing that I, I think is so important, and I struggle with this, because when you prepare, when you put a lot of effort into something, you don't want people to leave in a hurry, do you? Do you? Like if you if you put a lot of effort and you're stressing out, you get in a fight with your wife because you have this couple coming over, I'm not speaking from experience, but you get in a fight and you get tense, it's like you you know, you're you're getting everything ready, it's stressful, it's high stress, you put all this effort into it, you and and like you eat in five minutes, you're done, and you're like done. And now it's like clean up. Who likes that? You know, and I'm guilty of this. Especially in, in this season of our life, it's so incredibly busy where all of our kids are gone, like literally every day of the week pretty much are into something. And, and it can be very hard to be present at the table, can it? Where you just want get, to get to the next thing, like get cleaned up because you want to relax because the thought of cleanup makes you tired, right? Like the thought of it, the thought of having to clean up makes you tired. Not actually doing it, it's the thought of cleaning up that exhausts you. Maybe you're just superhuman host hospitality people out there but the point is this is that God has so taken time to arrange a table he's so taken time to arrange your season if you exit prematurely you'll miss the potential conversations you could have at the table and it's in those conversations that transformation happens 
So you have a hard season right now, and all you're thinking is, okay, I got to get through this. I got to get out of this. You want the exit door. You will miss out on the miracles in your life because you don't like what it feels like to be at a table across from an enemy. You don't like what it feels like to be at a table across from darkness. You don't like what it feels like to look at darkness in the face and be reminded of your failures, be reminded of what might happen, be reminded of how much you suck sometimes at life, be reminded about your sickness, be reminded about your challenges and your trials. You want to get off the table, out of the room, because you don't want to see it. But God's like, if you just turn your attention off of your enemy for a second, off the darkness and onto me, the host of the table. We're going to have some conversations and exchanges, make some agreements. That's where agreements happen in relationship at the table. Ancient culture of Israel, they would invite people over. Political agreements, relational agreements would happen in the context of food at the table. The message translation says it like this in Psalms 23 verse 5. You serve me, listen to this, a six-course dinner right in front of my enemies. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. God wants to show and make a spectacle about how much he loves you. You revive my drooping head, my cup brims with blessing. So any, let, let me just, before I go on to number two, the, the point is this. The meal is a sign that in spite of the threat of the enemies, the covenant commitment between God and the guest at the table guarantees safety. And I'm going to get into this in a little bit. God doesn't, the point of the table and the enemies is God wants you to know, I'm not going to remove darkness from and around your life but I'm, I'm going to hold it at bay to show you that I'm a good God and that with me, I've protected you from this. I'm not going to remove it, but I'm going to hold it at bay. It's going to be sitting at the other side of the table. I don't, I don't think you're, you're hearing this. I, I don't think you're hearing this. I, I'm going to go into this in a second. Just wait, just wait, just wait. Number two, write this down. Number two, number, number two. You prepare a table now before me. Like I said, I'm, I'm breaking down every element. I'm hoping to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to get through all this. You prepare a table. This could be actually a series, just this one verse. You prepare a table before me. Let's discuss what the word before me actually means. This word before really represents this idea that God knows that the best part of the meal is cooking, not eating. Have you ever been to a restaurant, like a high-end restaurant, and the best place to sit is right in front of the chef? You know it's a high-end restaurant when, when you can trust that they are okay with you seeing into their private space, right? Like, you know something's good, something good's going to happen, hopefully, and it costs more. You get to see the chef in action. This is the nature of our relationship with God at the table. God wants us to see the chef in action in our life. God desires, not just to hand it to you. Not just to hand you the food. Like, here you go, eat some food, just like, and then peace out. No, I want to show you what the, t the time that I took to prepare this food for you. I want to show you the ingredients. I want to show how it's going to give you nutrients. Because if you see the ingredients, it's going to enlighten you into what's going to come as a result of eating that food. Like, look at the quality of ingredients, the quality of product. God wants to show you and bring you into the process. A mentor of mine, Patricia King, years ago told me, he's like, one of the worst things that we can do for the younger generation is just give them everything. They need to learn perseverance. They need to learn through, to, to have faith in the midst of struggle. They need to learn to, put, to push through lack in times where it's lean in life. They need, if you just give them everything, like the Bible says in Proverbs, an inheritance obtained too early in life is not a blessing in the end. Because you might squander it. Because you've not learned the skills to steward it. And you've not learned to hustle through hard times. Like you need the, listen, the, you need the darkness to find the treasure. And no one really wants to hear that. Because you want it to all be sun, sunshine and fairies and like and easy. But the reality of it is like it's in the dark times that will make you a better person. Because you actually have to apply faith. You don't need faith when it's always good. When you really need faith is when it's not good, and the only thing you have is faith. 
That's when faith grows into a fruitful tree. So you prepare a table before me. The best part of the meal is cooking, not eating. Like I said, this is, this is the picture that he's, he's drawing. David wants us to see that God is not a chef behind the scenes. He prepares the meal in front of our faces. Now, it's interesting because the root of this Hebrew word comes from another word which means for face. So when you read, you prepare a table before me, the actual literal translation is you prepare a table, uh, you prepare a table in front of my face. I'm in front of your face and you're in front of my face. And the fa- that speaks of intimacy. Here's the thing. When, when it says in Exodus and it says in Numbers that God spoke to, God, or God spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend face to face. The picture is this. It's so close I can feel the breath. One of the things in, in ancient Israel and the Hebrews understood this is that you weren't really intimate until you could feel someone's breath on your face. Now, no one really wants that, but it's the picture of, I'm so close to you, I can feel your breath on my face. Face to face with God is I'm so close, I'm, rece- I'm, I'm feeling your breath on my face. So this concept that David is drawing here is that I am a chef that prepares a table in front of your face where I'm close to you like Moses was. I'm intimate with you like Moses was. It speaks of intimacy. Are you, are you hearing this? Number three, write this down. You prepare a table before me and now let's talk about the presence of my enemies. David words, uses this Hebrew word that means to place conspicuously or set on high display. I'm making a public spectacle because I want the glory. I want the glory. And in this context, who is the enemy? Like when you look into the, the root of who is the enemy, is it, is it, you know, the one who stands against me on social media? Is it the person with a bomb concealed in a bag? Is it the person with the finger, the finger on the trigger? Like who is the real enemy? Is it my job? Is it my family? Is it Judas in my life? Like who is the real enemy here? And yes, the word actually means adversary, but one of the the main focuses of this word is actually affliction. It's actually distress. It's being in a narrow place. It's something that is showing hostility towards you in life. It's not just a, a picture of an individual. We often think of enemies like an individual. You know that your trial is your enemy in a sense. It's actually what's going to bring the greatest fruit and treasure out of your life, but it feels like an enemy. The picture is it's great distress. The, the, the Garden of Gethsemane was like an enemy to, to Jesus. He wanted to get out of it. It was a place of distress and oppression and pressing. It was a stressful situation. In fact, it was so stressful, his body went into what they call in the medical field hemohydrosis, where his li- he literally began to sweat blood. That's how stressed out his body was. That's like an enemy of sorts. And so when he says, I prepare a table before you in front of your enemies in the midst of adversarial situations and circumstances, affliction and distress, being in a narrow place, I have given you everything you need to overcome. So when Jesus said, if I can not drink this cup, take it away from me, Jesus was like, listen, I've given you everything that you need to overcome. I'll be with you in this process. It means to be confined. It means to be troubled. Other words, there are enemies outside and there are enemies inside. Some of the greatest enemies of our life are you. Some of the greatest enemies are the things and the things that war within us. Mindsets. We can easily blame the devil. It's always easy to blame external forces. Sometimes the greatest enemies are ourselves. We sabotage ourselves. We make dumb decisions ourselves. We are influenced ourselves because of bad mindsets without a renewed mind. It's funny. Listen to this, this amazing concept. I'm just going to break it down. I, I mentioned how the shepherd would, would call these in-between places, these, these flat places between hills, between challenges, tables. Well, the shepherds also, after a long difficult days work shepherding the sheep because this is what we see right we see this whole this whole psalm 23 really is about the lord 
the Jehovah Rohi, the Lord being our shepherd, our guide, right? Our leader. Well, after a long day's work, the aim of the shepherd was to bring the flock safely back to the fold where the weary sheep could be safe and rest for the night. And sometimes they would spread out this food in a trough. And because the sheep lie down and rest after they've eaten, after they'd slept, they would be protected by a stone wall that surrounded them. And the shepherd himself would actually sleep across the opening and be the door. And during the night, thieves and dangerous animals might approach the fold, but there was no way they could reach the sheep because the shepherd was guarding the door. So the point is this. I said earlier, the Lord doesn't always remove the dangers from our lives, but he helps, but he does help us overcome them and not be paralyzed by them. So he doesn't remove the enemies from your table, but he holds them at bay so they won't touch you. This is the picture. As soon as you get your eyes on the enemy, though, that's when you begin to engage the enemy. If you keep your eyes on God, the enemy has no power on you and over you. So this idea of the shepherd, after a long day's work, has prepared the feast. The sheep are lying down. They're resting. They've eaten. They've been restored in their soul, restored in their body physically. And now the shepherd is guiding them and guarding them at night from all the thieves and potential threats that may come their way. This is what God does for us. Number four. Number four. We're almost done. Hold on. You anoint my head with oil. I love this. You anoint my head with oil. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Why is this so important? You know that wealthy homes back in this time in ancient Israel, and wealthy homes, and this still happens to this day, would have an expensive vessel of perfumed oil by the door. And it would be used on special occasions for special individuals. And what they would do is, if there was a liked individual, imagine we reintroduce this to Canadian culture. If there was a liked individual, the, the host would dip his hand in the oil as the guest, as the invited guest was coming in. And if this was a special guest, that individual would wipe oil on their forehead. And it would drip down. And it was a sign of you're a very special welcomed guest. You're a special welcomed guest. This was a prophetic act that they were distinct amongst others. And it's interesting because if you apply that, you take this sort of tradition, and then you look at in that time how shepherds would use the oil. This is what we see because when shepherds would re-enter the fold, the shepherd would look for bruised sheep. He would look for damaged horns. He would look for any, any potential attack that may have happened, that may have happened on the sheep. Maybe they were injured. Maybe they were sick from eating something poisonous. They were hurting. He would apply soothing oil over these areas of the body. And then he would actually, and this is for the next point, but he would take a cup with two handles on each side, fill it with water to the brim, and restore the sheep who was thirsty. But this oil went further than just the injured parts of the body. They would often, the shepherds often would anoint the horns of the sheep, rub oil all around the horns of the sheep to keep the insects and flies away. There are flies, which are lies, that are trying to come at your life right now. And the purpose of the oil is to protect you from the flies and the lies that are coming at your mind every day about who you are and who you're not. There's all kinds of intimidation coming at you every day of the week. The point of the table of the Lord and the point of the anointing oil is to protect you, to heal your injuries, to soothe your soul when you are weary and tired, but to protect your mind from all the things that are coming at you, try to land on you to multiply. This was the role of the shepherd. This is why it's so powerful when you read this verse. It's so, there's so many elements to it. And if you look at the motivation and the context and the history of why David would have written it this way, we see that as a shepherd, because he was a shepherd. Before he was a king, he was a shepherd. Learn how to take care of the sheep. He knew this. That's why he could say, the Lord is my shepherd, because he so understood what it was like to be a shepherd. He's like, what I do for my sheep is a fraction of what God does for me. So it's easy for me to see God as Jehovah Rohi because he's the shepherd. He's the shepherd king. 
He's the great shepherd. Number five, last point, and then we're done. He says, my cup brimming over. It says, you prepare it. Let me read the whole verse over again one last time. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My brimming cup runs over. In some translations, it would say it like blessing. And that means abundance, saturation, to be wealthy, satisfied. It's funny, I love this. I think we should introduce this one, this custom. Because in these times, travelers would come. They'd, they'd, you know, knock on the door. Like, hopefully they'd be hosted. And if the host really loved the conversation and really loved the individual, you know what they'd do? At the end of the conversation... They would fill the cup running over as a sign, I want you to stay a little longer. If they filled it half full, it was like, hit the road, Jack. We're done. I'm not digging this conversation. I'm not digging this vibe. I'm not, I, there's no vibe here. I don't, you know, you're, you're a guest and you're welcome. You ate my food, but I'm filling the glass half full now as a sign. Like, once you finish this, you're out. But if I fill the cup full and I'm running it over, it's like, I want you to stay here with me. I got more to talk to you about. This is, the, this, is, this is the heart of God for you. God never wants you to leave the table. God never wants you to leave this relationship that he has with you. That's what it represents. It's not just coming on a Sunday or coming to a connect group or being a part of an event. No, it's an everyday lifestyle of honor and relationship with God. God has filled our cup to the brim and it's running over because it's a sign he wants you to stay. There's more for him to share with you. There's more for him to tell you. There's more for him to do in you. I'm inviting you into a process. Remember, I am Jehovah Nissi. I am the banner over you. I am your victory every single day of the week. You know, it says, it's interesting because one of the first times that that someone calls God, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner, is in the context, if you read it, in, read it in Exodus chapter 17, when Moses is fighting against the enemy. Remember the story, he, as long as he held his rod up in the air, and he had both of his hands up in the air, he would be winning the battle. The moment his arms would fall, he would be losing the battle. And so at one point, Aaron and her her, his assistant, and Aaron, they had to hold up his arms. The strategy was, as long as we can hold up Moses' arms, we'll win the battle. And it was right after that battle was won because his arms, because he had community. Here's the thing. If you don't have someone to hold up your arms in life, you will lose every battle. This is why it's so important, connect groups. It's so important, you guys. You can't just do life alone. You can't just be an observer in community and church and expect to, 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 to win in life. Yes, you'll win at, le- at a level, but you'll never win at the potential of what God has for you if you don't have people in your life holding up your arms when you're tired because God has called you to win some stuff that you can only win with people in your court holding you up. And so as long as his arms were held up, he, w- he would win the battle, and then the, they actually ended up winning it. And right after that, Moses made an altar and offered an offering on that altar and made this statement, God, you are Jehovah Nissi. You are my banner. I lift you up. You are the sign of victory in my life. And I I say this because I want to close with this last part of really, I think, the story. Because David He painted this picture for us in six verses. I read five, but six verses in Psalms 23. And we see a a prophetic manifestation of Psalms 23 in Luke chapter 22. Can I read this to you? It says, he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Speaking of Jesus, this is the Last Supper. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. Remember, an agreement. Where was the agreement? The agreement was reminded to them within the context of food and relationship at the table of God. This was the last supper. 
an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. But listen to this, verse 21. But here at this table, sitting among us as a friend, is the man who will betray me. You guys, do you see this? Jesus literally shows them Psalms 23 at the Last Supper. And in the presence of my enemy, I have everything I need and you have everything you need. At the table of God, I have situated and appointed the right people and the right thing for the right season at the right time. And although it may be intimidating and it might feel like betrayal, it's what I have ordered because I've specifically designed this season to draw the best out of you. Here he is at the table in the presence of his enemies. God prepares a table. For it has been determined, verse 22, for it has been determined that the Son of Man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him. The disciples begin to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. I think it's interesting that the veil in the Old Covenant temple was torn at the moment of death of Jesus on the cross. And the position of his body, both of his arms were up. A prophetic picture, a prophetic picture, a foreshadowing, just like what Moses had. The war has been won. And the last sight that they see is both of Jesus' arms up, pinned to a cross. And it's a statement that just as the Lord was the banner over Moses in that battle, that I am the banner over your life in your battle. I want you to stand up. This whole psalm really is a picture of the gospel. And if you're in this room and you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never let Jesus into your life to be the center of your life, to be the, the leader of your life. This is an opportunity. Maybe you feel like he's been a guide at times, but you wouldn't call him your shepherd. You wouldn't call him your leader. You wouldn't call him the one that's leading you in every area of life, just leading you in parts of your life. Now is your chance to get off the fence of indecision, the fence of being just lukewarm in the middle and jump all in to your relationship with God. If that's you, just I want you to open up your heart today and to say, Jesus, I'm letting you in. I'm letting you in. I receive your forgiveness today. I receive your forgiveness. Thank you that you hung on a cross with both hands up to be my banner, to be the one who gives me victory, to be the one that stands over me in victory. You, your, your hands were pinned to a cross. Your hands were lifted up because you knew that I could never do life on my own and be the person you've called me to be. So today I give you my life. I honor you with my life. I give you my heart today. I believe that you are God. I believe that you were raised from the dead. Today I want to dive into a relationship with you. All in. If that's you, I want to just encourage you. That's the most important decision you've ever made in your life. 